0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 21 this morning. We're going to jump right into the scriptures this morning, right into our text, um, and uh, jump right into that this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you haven't been with us uh, for a while, we've been in a series this summer called Unexpected or an Unexpected Sermon Series. Well,' lower that a little gene now, I can see you. Uh, An unexpected uh, sermon series walking through the book of 1 Samuel together. Uh, All kinds of unexpected things the Lord does in this book. Uh, Last week we saw unexpected loyalty. Uh, We looked at the life of Jonathan and his loyalty to David um, as opposed to loyalty to his father Saul. It might have been, many people would have thought, in Jonathan's best interest to be loyal to his father, the king, but he chose to be loyal to David, who he knew was being wrongly pursued by his father, and was in covenant with him, even though it cost Jonathan very much. We also saw that David was loyal to Jonathan, even after he died, and his family, but ultimately what we saw is the most unexpected loyalty there is is the loyalty of God, holy God, to us as sinners. And God keeping his covenant to us as, his God, as our God. And, um, and I hope that that has challenged you, as it has me, to uh, worship God even greater because of his covenant loyalty to us, even when we have been faithless to him. But where that has left David is a man on the run. I almost entitled this message, Unexpected Fugitive. Uh, And that's what David is. He's really a fugitive from the law of the land. He's a fugitive from, from the justice system of the land at the time in that Saul had declared him an enemy of the state. And had put a death sentence on his life. And so it left David as a man on the run, really all by himself. But as I looked at the passage more this morning, I really felt like the real message is the refuge that David finds along the way. could have been titled Unexpected Refugee as well as david finds himself in various places but again i think the focus is more on the refuge that david finds is rather unexpected so saul has said that david is going to be killed and jonathan has uh, confirmed that and so he said you've got to go you've got to run for your life and so where would he go what does david do when that comes Saul wanted David dead and he had commanded others to help make sure that David died. So what was David to do? How do you live when the king is against you? What do you do when the ruler of the land that you live in has chosen to oppose you? How do you survive in a land where the supreme ruler has positioned himself in opposition to who you are and what you stand for? Though David had been good to Saul, he now found himself at odds with him, and what would he do? Where could he go? How would he survive with the supreme ruler against him? More importantly, David had been told that he would be king, and this was God's plan. How would the plan of God survive when the king was against him? The first thing David did was seek a place of provision. If you look at it in 1 Samuel chapter 21, I'm not going to read the entire thing. uh, But the first section there, if you're looking at your Bible, I don't have it on the screen, is called David at Nob. The first thing he did was seek a place of provision. He needed food and he needed a weapon. So he went to the priest who at the time was Ahimelech. I don't know why, you know, he he went to the priest. He knew to go to the priest. I'm not sure that if you were on the run, your first place to be would be to come to me to look for food and a weapon. Uh, You might find food. I'm not sure what kind of weapons you'll find. But David went to the priest, Ahimelech, said, I need food. And Ahimelech said, well, all we have is the sacred bread. And he ended up giving him the sacred bread. And that's another sermon for another day. And Jesus talked about why, you know, he did that. And then David said, well, I need a weapon. Do you have a weapon here? That's a funny question for a priest. Priests normally wouldn't have any kind of weapon. But I think David knew what Ahimelech had, and I think Ahimelech knew that David knew that as well. Ahimelech said, all we have is the sword of Goliath. Somehow after David had killed the giant Goliath with his sword, the sword ended up in the possession of the priest. The priest replied, 1 Samuel chapter 21, 9, the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So he has his food and he has his sword. The way he got it is an interesting story in itself. If you look at it, he really, at best told a fib to Ahimelech. I think he really lied to Ahimelech, whether he did it to protect his life, whether he did it to try and convince him to get food and the sword, we don't know. The Bible doesn't comment on it, but it seems to try and spare Ahimelech's life, it was a don't give him any more information that he needs because it might endanger his life if he knew he was aiding and abetting a fugitive. So he didn't tell him, just said I needed The food and the sword, and he took it and he ran. So where to next? Where does he go after he gets his provision? He went, after going to the priest, he got the sword and he got the food. David went to the one place on earth Saul would not expect to find him. And perhaps the one place on earth Saul would not be willing to go to look for him. David went to Gath. Gath. If you remember, Gath was the place that Goliath was from, Philistine territory. Gath was the territory of the Philistines who were the enemies of Israel, the hometown of Goliath. Now imagine David showing up as the one who killed their great warrior, actually carrying the sword of that great warrior with him. But he knows it's the one place that Saul would not look for him. So he went looking for sanctuary, maybe. Hoping that the enemy of his enemy would be his friend, possibly. Thinking he might persuade the king to keep him alive just to spite Saul, perhaps. But whatever his thinking, he realized pretty quickly it was not going to happen. The king may have been open to David's words, but his servants quickly pointed out how dangerous David could be What would he do in order to get his life spared? What would you do in that situation? What would you do if you're in the situation where you knew that the game was up? What David did, 1 Samuel chapter 21, 12 to 13. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short on madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house Sends him away. David left Gath. And he sent him away in that moment. And got, and he was delivered by acting insane. I don't know if you've ever tried that strategy to get out of something. It worked for David. Now where to go next? He needed a place to hide. Still couldn't go back to Saul. David went and hid in a cave. It says that David went and hid in a cave. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and father's household heard about it. They went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or disconnect or discontented gathered around him. That's quite a group, right? <laughs> if you were pulling together an army, listen to all those who are in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. Oh boy! About 400 men were with him. That's the army that's gathered around him. Distressed, debtors, discontented, his family gather around him in the cave. Imagine this is the one who has been anointed to be the next king of Israel. He's cowering in a cave, or hiding at least. How could this be? Maybe there was some mistake. Maybe Samuel got it all wrong. How could God's plan come about from this place? How could God be at work when the supreme ruler of the country is out to get him and he's hiding in a cave? While in the cave David's family came to him, most likely they were also in danger from the king. With a death warrant out on him, then anyone who was close to David would not have been safe. In fact, when Saul found out the priest had given David bread, even though the priest said, I had no knowledge that he was running from you, Saul still put out an order to kill the priest and all the priests at that time. David had to find some protection. The cave was nice for a time, but he knew it wouldn't last forever, and especially, David said, for his father and mother. They were aged, They couldn't hide forever and they couldn't go on the run with him. So what would he do with his father and mother? He went to another enemy of Israel. Went to the country of Moab. But this one was a little different. David had a little inn in Moab. If you know the story, if you remember back a little bit in your Bible studies, David's great-grandmother was from Moab. Her name was Ruth. And so he had ancestors who lived in Moab, and maybe this is the reason the people of Moab were a little more favorable to him because they were at least open to taking in David's father and mother and providing some protection. So he took care of his father and mother and left them in Moab. And so he found protection for them. Then a prophet came to him and told David, You can't stay in the cave, you have to leave, go to the forest. And that's what he did. He went to the forest. And that's as far as we're going to go this morning. That's chapter 22, verse 6, where he leaves, 5, where he leaves off and goes to the forest. So here is the unexpected fugitive, the unexpected refugee, looking for a place to hide. He goes to his enemies, and they almost kill him. He runs to a cave. He runs to another one of Israel's enemies and eventually ends up hiding in the forest. David is a man on the run, and he finds provision and refuge in unexpected places. He receives a sword from a priest. He flees to his enemies and doesn't receive much protection there, yet he is kept from being killed by them by convincing him that he's insane and not worth his time. He hides in a cave, then he finds sanctuary for his parents with another enemy. Finally, he flees to the forest. If we look at it simply from a natural perspective, we might say God has forgotten about David. David is on his own and he has gotten pretty lucky, we might say, to be alive at this point. Just from a natural perspective, we might say David got lucky that Saul did not find out he was with the priest. Lucky for David the king didn't believe the king believed he was insane. Lucky for David the king of Moab didn't decide to kill him. But is that the way David saw his situation? Did David forget about God and God's plan and now he was just in complete self-preservation mode? If only we could get some glimpse into what David was thinking. If only we could know how David himself saw his situation. Well, actually, we can't. It's not in this passage, but if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip a little further over to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. What was David's thinking in this moment? God has given us insight into exactly how David saw his situation. David was a poet and a songwriter. And while he was on the run, he composed songs or psalms or sometime near afterwards, he composed songs or psalms that are preserved for us, many of them in the book of Psalms today. And Psalm 34 If you have that before you, you'll note that the title of the psalm says, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. So a psalm reflective of what David's thoughts were at the moment. Did he think he was just lucky? Did he think he just got away with one? Did he think that God had abandoned him? Well, listen to the words of Psalm 34. And you decide what David thinks. It says this. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Wait a second. David, I thought you acted insane. I thought you were the one that was drooling down your beard and making marks on the doorpost. And yet David, through that, interprets that as God's deliverance of him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good deeds, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, And the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him For David clearly the refuge was not the enemy's camp it was not his ability to convince someone to that he was insane so they would let him go the refuge was not a cave the refuge was not the forest For David, his refuge was the same refuge it had been when he went up against Goliath. He did not go up against Goliath with a sling and a stone. God did battle with Goliath, and he happened to use David. God was the refuge for David, and he would use his fake insanity. He would use a cave. He would use his ancestors. He would use a forest to protect him but make no mistake about it, it was the Lord who was David's refuge and strength. So what do you do when your life is in opposition to the supreme ruler of the land? You continue to trust God. You continue to believe that he is your refuge and your strength. David did everything he could on his part. He protected the vulnerable by finding sanctuary for his parents. He acted insane as a strategy to keep his life. He ran to the cave and then listened to the prophet and fled to the forest. David trusted the Lord and believed the Lord that he would lead him and that somehow he was at work and his plan would come about in his life and in God's world. Last Friday, not the supreme ruler of our land, we don't have a king, but the Supreme Court of the United States made a decision that said it was unconstitutional for states to have any laws banning homosexual marriage in their states. Now we know that we don't live in a theocracy where the entire country recognizes and lives under the rules of God. That's not the country that we live in. So we do not expect all the laws of our land will match up with all the laws of our Lord. And sexual sin, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is nothing new, it is certainly not unique to the United States of America in the 21st century. However, what is new is the fact that last Friday the Supreme Court codified or institutionalized something that's blatantly contrary to God's clear teaching in Scripture. It's not the first time that's happened. Most notably, Roe v. Wade was another situation that it sanctioned, its sanctioning of abortion codified a practice that's contrary to God's laws. So we should, in the words of John Piper, who wrote yesterday, mourn and weep when the laws of our land have institutionalized sin. If it were anything that the Bible calls sin, whether it be gossip, adultery, lying, stealing, or sexual sin, we should mourn and weep when any government or land embraces something that is clearly sinful in the eyes of the Lord. It is not surprising it's, ha- it's happened in the past, and the Bible talks about it continuing to happen. However, it does raise for us some of the same questions that David faced. How do you live in a land where what you believe what you stand for and perhaps your very existence on certain issues is in opposition to the supreme rules of the land. And some might say, well, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the big deal? We have other rules on the books that are different than what we believe. And that's true. And some might say, well, you know, what some people are going to do in the privacy of their own homes and in their lives, you know, they don't follow God. They don't claim to follow God. So how does that concern us? It concerns us in many ways. Certainly, I would think as a country and, and the way we uh, operate, we, we would certainly want to operate in what's best, not only in line with what God says is best, but why he says it's best. It's best for children and families and for our nation. But it's a, I think this one is a little bit different. It's different from Roe v. Wade because with Roe v. Wade, there were some legal things that some people or companies that may have involved them, companies that didn't want to pay for employee health care that would support abortion or how people could protest abortion clinics. There were some legal issues involved, but dissenters were simply dissenters. In many ways, it did not affect the lives of those who opposed it other than to mourn and grieve the loss of innocent life. Not so with this ruling. Those who oppose it by many will be seen as discriminatory, bigots, hateful, at some point maybe even guilty of hate speech. It affects something the church already does in a big way, and that's marriage. It may have implications on who the churches can hire, who can use their facilities, what tax status is granted them as opposed to other nonprofits. This puts churches in opposition in some ways to the supreme law of the land. It's different than other things. And some might say, well, again, well, how does it affect us? I, I read from General Superintendent George Wood of the Assemblies of God. He says, I'm grateful that in its decision the Supreme Court acknowledged that our opposition to same sex marriage and behavior arises from good faith rather than animus. I am deeply concerned, however, about how the court will rule when government laws and regulations that reflect its redefinition of marriage conflict with our biblical behavioral standards. Here's some questions that are raised. Will public accommodation laws be interpreted to require Assemblies of God congregations to rent their sanctuaries to same-sex weddings if they also rent their sanctuaries to weddings involving a man and a woman? Will Assemblies of God ministers be required to solemnize same-sex marriages? Will Assemblies of God colleges and universities be required to enroll same-sex married students even though that constitutes a violation of their student conduct codes? Will our schools be able to access federal student loans and grants if our student conduct codes prohibit same sex behavior? Will Assemblies of God organizations that provide psychological counseling, adoption services, or other services that require professional licensees be stripped of their licensees because of their faith based opposition to same sex marriage and behavior? Will Assemblies of God organizations lose their tax exempt status because of their opposition? to same-sex marriage. You may say, well, this is just, the sky is falling. It's just doomsday teaching. You're, you're, you're going down a slippery slope that there's no way we're going to get there. And yet, some of this stuff has already happened. Catholic Adoption Services has been affected by their stance on this in the past. Bob Jones University has already had their tax-exempt status revoked uh, for certain things uh, in the past. The answer to these questions, based on the First Amendment, George Wood said, should be a straightforward no But in oral arguments, in this case before the Supreme Court, Solicitor General Donald B. Verrilli himself admitted when asked a question such as these, his response was, I don't think I can answer that question without knowing more specifics, but it's certainly going to be an issue. I don't deny that. I don't deny that. It's going to be an issue. And that is my deepest concern. George Wood says, although it should not be, religious freedom itself is going to be an issue. In this way, the Supreme Court's ruling regarding so-called marriage equality will be used as a wedge to narrow the scope and weaken protections afforded by the free exercise of religion granted to Americans by the First Amendment. No religious person, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, etc., can view that possibility as good news. No freedom-loving American... Should So this decision, I don't think, I think there's something in it that's a little different than other times when our country has chosen, because of its elected rulers or judges appointed to codify or institutionalize or legalize something that the Bible would call sin, Friday night, I sent an email to some of the leaders in our church um, just reflecting a little bit on this. Wasn't totally fleshed out, but I thought I'd read it a little bit this morning, wider my thoughts on this a bit. I wrote to them, I said, as leaders in a local church that takes the Bible to be the word of God and his truth to be timeless regardless of current political winds, the landscape of our ministry context has just shifted in a major way. The directives of our God and the laws of our land are rarely ever fully in line. However, like Roe v. Wade, today's decision has codified in our laws a stance that defies a significant foundational belief of our faith. Unlike Roe v. Wade, this decision carries with it much more baggage in that opponents are not simply dissenters but are often labeled bigots, discriminatory, and using hate speech. It is not too far a stretch to think that before long simply preaching and teaching the truth of the Bible that God created marriage to be between a man and a woman and running a church in accordance with that teaching in regards to who we marry and who we hire could be considered discriminatory, hate speech, and possibly illegal. Many in our country will see today's decision as progress, but it's actually moving backward. Moving backward to a time and world like that of ancient Rome. Ancient Rome, when much of the New Testament was written. That was a sad state of morality, And it was a hostile and deadly place to many Christians who were a small religious minority at the time. We often pray that God would make us more like the New Testament church, but this isn't usually what we mean. However, we may need to learn from them how to live fully for Jesus in a world that is hostile to our core beliefs. Like Peter and John in Acts 4, we will need to say that we will serve God rather than men and live to please God, not men, even when there are consequences for that choice. We don't know all the ramifications that will come as a result of this decision. As leaders in any new ministry context, we must always first pray for God's mercy and wisdom. We must learn how to follow Christ and still carry on the mission of loving and reaching people in our world we must also lead others to do the same. Earlier this month, I had a chance. I was walking through Harvard Yard with my son Isaac, and Isaac asked me how Harvard went from a school that trained ministers of the gospel to what it is today so far away from God's teaching. I thought for a second, and then I told him that it came about as people began to think that they were smarter than God, and they didn't need God. The decision today comes about from people elevating and relying on human thoughts and not gods. The challenge for us in the midst of this change in our ministry context is to live out our faith and learn how to love and reach people whose thinking has been so shaped by human thought that it is directly in opposition to God's teaching. Many of the people we are called to reach with the gospel We'll call evil good and call good evil. Sinners act like sinners. That should not surprise us. We're all sinners. But I also remind you that in the midst of the hostile Roman Empire where those New Testament Christians lived, the church experienced unprecedented, exponential, spiritual, and numerical growth throughout the known world a revival, an awakening. We need the Lord to do it again. Let it start here and let it start with you and me and let it start on our knees before God, our Father. And that is our hope that's always been our hope. As we look to God in the midst of any circumstances or any change in the world that we live in, We had already planned in November, Pastor Brian and I, to preach a series on biblical sexuality and we're going to do that and we'll address a lot more in depth of biblical sexuality according to the Bible and all the nuances and and, and what and responses to arguments of the day. I'm not going to go into all of those this morning. We set aside, I think, five or six weeks on various aspects of that topic to discuss in November. And I'm not an alarmist. Anyone of you know me, I don't think would describe me as that. Um, I'm not one that uh, I think sees something and Chicken Little says the sky is falling. I've been watching this issue for some time. The board members will tell you I've been talking to the board for some time about if this happens, how this might change our ministry landscape, how this could change and affect the way we are able to operate and decisions that we will have to make as a church at times. I think this one is a little bit different. And I really think as a pastor, my job is more than anything to help us as a church, to lead us in a place to live for Christ and to carry out his mission, whatever the ministry context we find ourselves in, be it friendly or hostile. We are still to live and to love for Christ. This is not, this is not about hating homosexuals. This is not about hating someone Who's caught up in this is in sin. This is not about singling out one sin over another, heterosexual sin, out, heterosexual sexual sin outside of marriage. The Bible is equally as hard on that. This is about recognizing that our land and the laws of our land have chosen to institutionalize and codify something that is directly opposite to the word of God and it may have effects on the way we do ministry in the land. You already know this, you already feel it. You were perhaps at work on Friday when the decision came down. There are those that wanted to celebrate and you to celebrate with them. And perhaps you were not sure how to respond. You already feel the tension. What can you say? What can't you say? What should you say? What shouldn't you say? Different ministry landscape and ministry context that we find ourselves in. So, what do we do, like David? When you find yourself in a land, some of your core beliefs disagree with the supreme laws of the land. Do we change what we believe? No, that's not the answer. David was in the right. He could not be otherwise. It is not wise nor good when your God and your king disagree to choose to obey the king over God. Do we run and hide like David did? I don't think that's our call right now. We still live in a constitutional republic. We still have a voice. We can still live and effect change, be salt and light, pursue the mission and call of God, albeit perhaps under harder or maybe difficult circumstances. So what do we do? You watch out for the vulnerable like David did with his parents. Children need to be led and taught in the ways of the Lord and see the goodness of the ways of God and the wisdom of walking in them. We need to be wise in our strategies and aware of what's going on in our world as we live in the midst of it. What does that mean? Protecting our church, making sure we're clear on where we stand, thinking through issues, things that may have been clear in the past but may look different in this new ministry context. Mostly, like David, we need to understand that God is our refuge. We must understand that God has protected his people in the past and he is not going to abandon us now. We must pray, we must weep and pray for a land that is chosen to institutionalize what God calls sin. We must pray that God will open eyes and hearts to himself. We must pray for revival and awakening, for a turning of hearts towards God. We must pray that the church of Jesus Christ would be the church and act in love and purity toward others In this world, Jesus came in truth, but in grace. Grace and truth, perfect balance. We must walk in both, especially on this issue. No compromising truth, but always leading with grace and making sure that that is our approach, just as our Lord's. We must pray to our Lord. And as we close out the service today, I want to give us a time to pray and to come to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, in John chapter 16, verse 33, said these words, said, I've told you these things so that, go to the scriptures, the next one, I've told you these things so that you may have Peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In that verse, we have both a promise of trouble and a promise of victory as we continue to trust in the Lord. And so we put our trust in him. And so trouble should not surprise us. Difficulty should not surprise us. We should expect it. And yet we can look to God for our hope and our strength and our refuge. I'm going to ask you to stand as our worship team comes back. going to read one more psalm in light of everything that's been said, and then we're going to have a time of worship and prayer for our nation, for our friends, for ourselves, as we close out our service. Psalm 57, also a psalm written by David. It says, a psalm of David when he had fled from Saul into the cave. And this is the words of David in the cave. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they've fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. The words of David in the cave, under distress, under hostility, not knowing what was going to happen, but trusting that God was in control. It may be that you feel that you find yourselves at times personally in a situation like that. I know I've been talking more corporately and nationally this morning, but at times, maybe personally, you also find your place in that state where you feel that hostility is being extended towards you, and yet... God is God and his plan has not changed. And he is your refuge and your strength. As we close out our service this morning, I wanna just leave, it's only 11.15, we've got a few minutes. I've left this time intentionally. Time to pray. Time to pray for our nation. God would turn their hearts towards God. Time to pray for those that we love, that are close to us but perhaps very far from God. That they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would come to know that God loves them, died for them, that God has a plan for their life, that God has grace available to them. It's God's will that none should perish. It's our mission to take the message to them and to share God's love with them. And so we'll close out our service at a time of solemn prayer, perhaps weeping, mourning, and yet on our knees looking to God as our refuge and strength. It's not that there's, in fact, I don't want to at all give the impression that God is not working because God is working. He was working in David's life and he's working in his world. In fact, what we see happening in the United States is very different than what's happening in other parts of the world, the global South in particular, what's happening with the growth of the church in South America, what's happening with the growth of the church in Africa, what's happening with the growth of the church in other nations around the world as the message of the gospel spreads and the church continues to grow. And I am thankful for that. And I'm grateful for all God is doing in other parts of the world. And I'm grateful that we get to partner with missionaries all around the world. And I'm grateful that we can send missionaries all throughout the world. But this is where we live. This is my home. This is the country where I'm a citizen. This is our mission field. This is where the church, we're called to make a difference. This is where I want to see the church grow. This is where I want to see God's name glorified. This is where I want to see people falling in love with Him and lives changed and eternities changed through Jesus Christ. I don't want to just see it happen in Africa and South America and Central America, though we praise God for that. We want to see it here too. And so, would you join me this morning as we pray that God would move, that God would send an awakening? that God would send a revival. It started here before, right in the Boston area. God, would you do it again?